I'd like you to open with me this morning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2. Last week, we considered uh, in terms of redemption or salvation, we considered the three essential parts of human nature uh, or of human being. We considered the spirit and the soul and the body, and it's helpful sometimes to break it down that way so that we can see how God effects and unfolds um, His plan of salvation. But it's important to remember that we are not three parts. We are a whole person. Uh, We have a spirit, we have a soul, we have a body, but we are whole human beings. And um, to use a phrase that is often thrown around in health and medicine, we need to think holistically. We need to think about the whole person and remember that God is at work in all parts of our being at the same time and also remember that they have influence on each other. And so uh, we're going to be uh, delving more deeply into that this morning. Um, We're still concerned with the question of how is Christ-like character developed in my life? How does that happen? How does God accomplish this work in me? Remember that Paul's chief goal was he wanted to know Jesus Christ and to be found in Him, not having His own righteousness, but a righteousness which comes on the basis of faith. And that's still before us. That's our goal. And this morning I want to look at how does Christ bring the victory into our lives over our fallen nature? How does that kind of unfold for us in practical terms? In Romans 12.1, Paul is turning a corner in this book. Those of you that have listened to me for many years, you, you know this. Maybe some of you this is new material. But Paul has laid a strong doctrinal foundation for the whole process of redemption in the first 11 chapters of this book. He spent the whole time unfolding in a systematic and very thorough way what it means to be saved in Jesus Christ, what what that whole process is and how God has done that work. And so he comes to chapter 12 and typically for Paul, he's turning the corner now and he's beginning to make the application of truth to our lives. And so if you can imagine this whole background, uh, he kind of begins this verse with the phrase, therefore, I urge you, therefore. And the therefore is resting upon the great plan of salvation. If we've understood it, if we've got a hold upon it, because Paul's explained it so well, then what he's about to say makes perfectly good sense. He says, I want you, therefore, to present by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, which is your spiritual or reasonable service of worship. I want to remind you this morning that this is called a worship service because I guess we got infected by churchianity somewhere along the way. But what this is, is a celebration of lives that have been worshiping all week. Worship 
does not take place between uh, 10 o'clock and 11.30 on Sunday morning. Worship takes place Monday through Saturday, all during the week, as you live your lives in devoted dedication to God so that His Holy Spirit can live and work through you. That is your spiritual service of worship. And what we do on Sunday is we come celebrating the life of Jesus Christ that is in us. And so Paul says, I want you to give yourselves to God. I want you to give your bodies to God. I recognize that you're His temple, that He lives in you. And I want you to be devoted to Him so that He can live through you, so that, so that your lives will be sweet aromas of worship. Every moment of your being is devoted to God. And then he gives us this very practical bit of insight as to how the process goes from the, the act of dedication to the formation of Christ-like character in our lives, in contradistinction or, or contrast to the world. He says, and do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. So there's the process. Don't live like the world any longer. Be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. That you can prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. And, and again, I, this is old stuff for most of you. But you know there are not three levels of God's will. You can pick the good, the best, and the better. Or whatever. Uh, you know, the mediocre and the top. It, it, no, it's... The will of God, you're either in it or you're out of it. If you're in it, it's good and acceptable and perfect. If you're out of it, you need to get back in it. And you can do that very quickly. In fact, I'll share some insight into that this morning. But um, it is as we are transformed through the renewing of our mind that we prove or live out the will of God in our lives. And that living out the will of God comes through, it begins with, transformed thinking. We have to think differently than is our habit. Now, I hope you have a copy of the outline this morning. Uh, there's a lot of material here that's really important, and I'm not going to go over all of it. The reason is because um, uh, the first Roman numeral, um, what happened in the fall and transformation and regeneration. I spent a lot of time in Genesis dealing with that. If you missed it, please go back and either download the PDF study guide or download the sermons on Genesis chapter 3, uh, dealing with the fall of man, because I spent a lot of time at the beginning of the year dealing with Roman numeral 1. I put it here because it logically helps understand the flow of, of this message, but I'm not going to spend time unpacking that this morning. Uh, Roman numeral 2, total depravity. What does that mean? When Adam and Eve fell, um, their fall was complete. It was total. They, they, they just, every part of their being was affected. And what that means is, is that we are really, really broken. We are really messed up. Um, not just a little messed up, but we are damaged goods through and through, <clears throat> as a consequence of the fall. 
And one of the areas that was majorly damaged was the mind. Now, not all Christians believe this, and not all church history affirms this. In fact, Thomas Aquinas, uh, a Catholic theologian of the Middle Ages, uh, basically said that human beings did not fall in their mind. They're, they, they were morally corrupt, their spirit died, but their mind was still working. It, it's rational, it's logical, and we have keen powers of reasoning and deduction. That's not true. In fact, if you, if you look at the fall, the principal thing that was affected, the principal thing that was affected was our mind to begin with. Because they believed a lie. They bought a lie. And as a consequence of that, they made a choice. They believed something was true that was not true, and they made a choice on their new belief, which turned out to be false. And as a consequence, they acted in the sin, and their minds were corrupted and damaged. And so even today, we, particularly in the West, we cherish our powers of reasoning and rationalism and deduction and the scientific method, and we're confident that we can figure everything out if we just apply sound reasoning. But the problem is, is that the Bible says that the, the condition of human beings is they walk in darkness and sin has blinded their eyes. And so their perception of reality is damaged. They don't have an understanding of truth. That contrast is apparent in all of Scripture. The contrast of light and darkness of being able to see versus being blind, uh, of, of holiness versus sinfulness. Those, those parallels between the light and the dark are constant in Scripture. And if you can imagine the human condition, it is black. It's black as night. People can't see anything. Um, their minds are darkened. Their foolish heart is darkened. And the Bible says that, that people grope in the darkness. And when you're groping around in the darkness, you can only begin to form impressions of reality based on what you bump into, you know, based on what you stumble over. And, and, and you, form, you try to form an image of your surroundings, but it's distorted and it's incorrect. And because we love logic so much in the West and we look at our, our logical deductions and everything and we say, we have great powers of reasoning. We can deduce the truth. But we don't realize that at the bottom of it, we have believed lies. Let me give you an example of a logically valid syllogism. A syllogism is a form of a logical argument. It has two premises, a major, a minor, and a conclusion. I want to give you an example of a logically valid syllogism that is wrong because the major premise is wrong. Here's the first statement. Now, so somebody's in the dark in this room, and uh, they have groped around and figured out that there are these objects in the room that have four legs, because they've, they've kind of figured that much out. And every once in a while, someone has climbed up on one and sat down. And they've called this thing a chair. 
and they figured out that there are chairs. They're, they're all over this room, there are chairs. And somehow or another, they get a just a glimmer of light while they're examining a chair, and it looks blue. Now, don't ask me how they know it's blue. That's, that's another part of the problem. But anyway, they, they notice it's blue, and they form a conclusion. The color blue only exists with chairs, because I've only seen this color in a chair. And so, the next time this glimmer of light shows up, they see Carrie's shirt. And they say, there's another chair. That shirt is blue. It must be a chair. Or they don't know what it is. If that's blue, it must be a chair. In other words, only chairs are blue. That is blue. It must be a chair. That is a logically valid argument. Are you with me? Do you think I'm stupid? Okay, that is a logically valid argument. <laughs> you didn't want to admit that, did you? <laughs> it's the chuckle afterward that let me in on it. The problem is the premise is wrong. The original starting point is flawed. It's an error. So you can build a whole system of logic on that premise, but every conclusion you draw will lead you down a trail of error because you started out with the wrong belief. Now, the problem is, if you look at Roman numeral 2, verse letter A and number 2, Roman numeral 2A2, in the fall of man, the mind was darkened and blinded to truth, resulting in false beliefs about what is real and valuable. With a foundation of wrong beliefs, rationalism leads to wrong conclusions and ultimately to bad choices. And by the way, I didn't say this right here, but bad choices leads to misery in life. So, with a foundation of wrong beliefs, rationalism leads to wrong conclusions and ultimately to bad choices. Now, what are we talking about when we say wrong beliefs? Let me read for you some examples of beliefs that are widely held, but that are biblically lies. Okay? In order to be secure, I must be rich. Now, that's a relative term. But you may think, in order to be secure, I have to have a good income with X amount of dollars in savings, an X amount of insurance, and a good retirement plan, and some investments, in order to be secure, I must be well off. Okay? That is a, a value, a belief that many people hold. But it is biblically wrong. It's a lie. Because the scripture does not say that. Our security, our hope, and our future is in Jesus Christ, who said, do not obsess yourself with the things of tomorrow, 
specifically in the context of accumulating wealth, he said, your father knows that you have need of things like clothes and food. I want you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and my father will take care of you in these other respects. Security comes from Jesus Christ. It does not come from wealth. And if you believe this premise, it will set you on a path in life toward what? In order to be secure, I must be wealthy. I must be rich. I want to be secure. Therefore, I must accumulate wealth. And that's my goal. Because I want to be secure. And so we set off on a path that ultimately the Bible calls materialism. Or the love of money. And I know people who, who really, really want money. And they want a lot of it in the bank. So they have access to it because they don't ever want to be caught in a situation where they can't whip out a card or write a check or make a withdrawal and cover the problem. And if they don't have that money, they are anxious and worried and nervous and they're very, very frustrated. And many believers, I'm not describing the world here, I'm describing worldly ways, but I'm describing many Christians. But see, the premise is wrong. Here's another one. I will be a successful person if I rise to the top of my company. The belief that the recognition of my hard work and effort gives me success and worth as an individual and is demonstrated as I climb the corporate ladder. That's what proves my worth and value. I'm successful when I have climbed the corporate ladder. How many people believe that? And they buy into that. And they make choices in their life based on that premise that is at its root false because God defines success in a very different way. Whoever will find his life, save his life, preserve his life, advance his life will lose it. But the one who loses his life for my sake will find it. And God defines success in very different terms. Here's another belief that many, many people have. In order to be happy, I must be married. In order to be happy, I must be married. A lot of young people believe that that's absolutely true. A lot of people that have been married three and four times already are still looking because they believe that that's really, really true. And they're looking for a person to make them happy. And the Scripture says there is only one who can ultimately satisfy those longings of the heart. But there's a premise that many people believe, and many people believe it's valid. You know? If I'm going to be happy, if I'm going to be fulfilled, I've got to get married. And that's going to be my pursuit. And that is a wrong premise. Here's another one. My life will only have meaning if I have children and leave a heritage to carry on my name. How many people believe that? How many people 
have set their goal toward, you know, marriage is not the primary goal, uh, it's a secondary goal, because having children and, and leaving a legacy, that's the goal. I, I, I'm going to be uh, have meaning in my life when I leave a legacy in my children. What happens when there are no children? What happens when there are children? And what significance and importance do they begin to occupy in this person's life? Because, friends, children were never intended to be our God or our goal. Um, They are a blessing and an inheritance from the Lord. But guess what? They belong to Him, not to us. And how many parents that have focused all of their energies in their children and all of their life and have poured their life into those children, what does that do to the children? They take on a a, a significance far greater. Um, And and they make sure that they have everything I never had. They have all the opportunities I was never exposed to. And... uh, they, they get to do all the things I never did, whether they want to or not. And, and how many children become victims of parents who mean well, but who are invested in the belief that leaving a legacy that fits my definition is what gives meaning to my life. See, we could go on with, with list after list. But there are many beliefs that people have bought into that are lies. And they ultimately, because they affect the direction of our lives and the choices we make, the goals we embrace, they set us up for failures in some very The failure, that is. They never... Those right goals. I just want to mention briefly before we go to the, the second page of this, that um, our, our body and souls work together in a synergistic way, too. We're talking about holistic thinking this morning. I want you to realize that your body affects your mind. It affects your emotions. It, it, it affects uh, your, your choices. Um, my body affects a lot of my choices. Do I want to climb six by the elevator? I think I'll take the elevator. You know, I, I make choices based on my body. Our emotions have a significant impact on our body. We may not be consciously thoughtful of that every time, but, but things that out there affect physical reactions. Ron sent me an email of a moron, and uh, it, was, it was a great picture. I don't know if it was photoshopped or what, Ron, but it was, it was quite the image. Here's this burly smiling for the camera. In the background, there is a mother bear charging him. You know, last picture. Yeah, I... I'm assuming that that may have been Photoshopped, because I wouldn't have been standing there taking that picture. <laughs> At any rate, uh, you know, there's the image. Well, if that guy had happened to look over his shoulder and there, he would have had an instant physical reaction. Maybe several that were untoward, even. <laughs> but he would have had an instant physical reaction. 
His heart would have began to race. His breathing would have accelerated. His muscles would have gotten extra energy and input. His pupils would have focused in and he would have turned ready to bolt. i got to run. And his sweaty palms would probably have dropped the bear cub. Good move. Because our emotions, namely fear, affects our bodies. There's this interplay always going on that is happening. We, we can't cut ourselves up into pieces and say, well, that's physical, that doesn't affect my emotions. Yes, it does. Or, oh, that's emotional, so that shouldn't affect how I, how I feel in my body. Well, it, it does. All of those things have an impact. So when we start looking at how is it that we are made over into the image of Jesus Christ. How does that process unfold? How does it happen? It begins after we have committed ourselves to God. It begins with the renewing of our mind that we begin by the grace of the Holy Spirit who brings these things to our attention. We begin to see the ways that we have believed lies that are driving the course of our life in the wrong direction. And we replace those lies with the truth of God to to root us and ground us in the light and in the truth so that as we embrace the truth by faith, the character of Jesus Christ begins to be formed in us because our thinking is righted. This is so important. I want you to look on the backside, letter C. The sins of the fathers are passed on to the third and fourth generation. Because we need to ask the question, where do I get all these wrong thoughts from? Where does my wrong thinking come from? And one of the things that uh, the Scripture says that we don't like is the sins of the fathers are passed down to the third and fourth generation. You can look at that in the, in the Ten Commandments, other places in Scripture. And, and if you just stop there, it's pretty dismal. But the next part of the verse is very encouraging, by the way. It says, but God's blessing and favor is visited upon thousands whose hearts are turned toward him. And, and so uh, there are the sins of the fathers that have generational effects. But there are great blessings for those who stop the process. And, and I want you to mark it down this morning. I don't care how old you are, how young you are. You can be the person that stops the, the train wreck in your generation. You can be the one who stops it. And even if your children are grown and, and, and you're a grandparent, if you get your life on track by the grace of God, and you begin to influence your adult children who can influence their children as the, the hope of the gospel is passed down through the generations, eventually it will get to the little guys. And they will begin to grow up in this atmosphere of the presence and the sweetness of the aroma of Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean they're not going to be born with a sin nature. But, you know, sometimes I, I, I look around at uh, missionaries that I know that are my age, and uh, their lives, I, I don't know, you know, sometimes I think they just got a head start on me. 
Because as I look at their lives and I see how well they've done in Jesus, I'm not talking about the world's success, I'm talking about in Jesus. And then I look back and they're the, the sons and daughters of missionaries and pastors who were the sons and daughters of missionaries and pastors, who were the sons and daughters of missionaries and pastors. I look at people like the Westergrens and the Mangums and and others that I have known in the history of the Alliance who are fourth and fifth generations of people who love and serve God. And they're not necessarily all missionaries and pastors. They, they may be in business. They may be teachers. They, you know, uh, the one uh, missionary we had here recently, uh, all of his children are, are in fields uh, of medicine or, uh, you know, um, engineering or chemistry or whatever else. But they're all living for Jesus Christ. And I think what a wonderful heritage that these people have had because they got such a marvelous jump in terms of their, their upbringing and their, and their heritage and their richness. But you can be the one that stems the tide and, and raises a standard and, and turns the direction of your family because you purpose to honor and love Jesus Christ. Patterns of behavior and defense mechanisms are learned within families. See, they were answering the question, how do these wrong ideas get formed? Children grow up in households. Most of them. A few in this world grow up in orphanages, but it's a type of household. The point remains the truth. Children grow up in an environment. It's an environment of culture. It's an environment of, of behavior and beliefs peculiar, particular to the family. It's an environment that is filled with influence, where the sins of the parents and extended family conspire to influence the development of the children in ways that mimic the weaknesses and addictions of their parents. Children who grow up in alcoholic homes are affected. Now, I'm not excusing behavior. I'm just simply explaining that there is an effect that is, that is real and genuine. And as parents, you know, uh, Rowena gave me uh, a, a picture that I had um, for many years in my study at our other house hanging on a column that faced my desk so I could see it. And it was a, a counted cross-stitch of a, a man holding the hand of a little child who walked beside him. And there was a poem beneath that. And I don't remember the poem verbatim, but I always have remembered the message. Be careful where you walk. Be careful what you do. Be careful where you go. Be careful how you talk. Uh, because there's a little one who's walking beside you that wants to be just like you. And children learn from observation far more than they will ever learn from instruction. They absorb what they see. And uh, if you happen to be their hero, they get a lot that you are not aware they're getting. And if... Uh, if they happen to despise you, that also affects them in profound and significant ways. 
And that made an impact on me. I'm not going to tell you for a heartbeat that I was a perfect parent by no means, because I'm not a perfect person. And, and I, I'm still under construction, and have been. And I was even more under construction when my kids were little. Some days my mind wishes I could start over, and my body knows that's really stupid. <laughs> but, you know, every once in a while, I, have, I know so much more now, you know. Well, I guess that's why you get to be grandparents. I don't know. But anyway, that, that impact was there because environment influences children. And they absorb things through that that form their patterns of thinking, you know. Also, genetic defects develop within family lines and predispose children to susceptibilities, weaknesses, and potential mental, emotional, and addictive patterns of behavior. They feel like they've found a gene for alcoholism, for example. That, that alcoholics become addicted to alcohol because there's a certain gene in their genetic structure that predisposes them to alcoholism. And that comes through family lines. Well, friends, there are practical solutions to these kinds of things. If you have a, if there is a gene for alcoholism and you happen to have it, you don't have to be an alcoholic. You know, if you look back in, in your family history and you see four generations of alcoholics, you know what I would do if I were you? I would never drink. I, duh. You don't have to be an alcoholic if you don't drink. I don't care if you've got ten genes for it. If, if it never crosses your lips, you're never going to get addicted to it. I mean, it's that simple. And sometimes we have a tendency to look at that and say, well, I can't help it because, you know, I've got this genetic problem. I'm predisposed. I have four generations of alcoholics in my family. What do you expect me to be? Well... Unfortunately, most people don't make those connections before they start the habit. That's the tragedy. But again, if you can get that child, Awana, Children's Church, if you can get that child to build the truth of God into their lives so that they will make the right choices. You know, who knows? Alcoholism is still a choice, but it often... <laughs> is influenced by family history and maybe by genetics. I don't know. But those things are there. Our warfare is not against flesh and blood. Demons who are... And I'm going to change the word here. I had a conversation with Ron Pfeiffer after the first service, and I think he made a very valid point. I want to be careful here. So I use the word invited. And most people are not ever aware that they invited any demons to do anything. And that's absolutely true. Most people are never aware they've given an invitation. The reason is they're not even aware there were demons involved to, to begin with. That's the first thing. And they never made a conscious choice to say, Hey, I'm open to demonic activity. Come attack me. No, no one ever really did that. At least... Most people don't. Some people that are deeply into the occult know what they're doing and they do it anyway, but that's the rare exception. However, demons invade homes and families because the behaviors, the sinful behaviors, 
of parents and grandparents have allowed those strongholds in their lives. And because of that, sinful patterns of the parents gain access access to the children often from birth beginning their insidious influence. This often leads to bondage at very young ages, which further deepens the family heritage of generational sins. How many families have you known that you you know multi-generations that in those generations have peculiar weaknesses that seem to run through the family line. It may be alcoholism. Uh, it, it may be organized crime. It may be um, depression or some other form of affective disorder. It may be, um, you know, partic- it, it may be a gambling family. And many of them have ruined their lives through excessive wastefulness of their resources in gambling. And yet there seems to be an addiction in the family. Uh, How many families are oriented around pride and ambition and, and political aspiration? And that becomes the driving, motivating factor of the whole family. And it goes on generation after generation. Names come to your mind, even as I'm saying that. You know, families have these kinds of heritage. And they often do not recognize that they are being now influenced by the presence of demonic spirits in the home. The scripture says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. And and that's important that we understand that that real warfare. We've got our own problems that we made ourselves. We have our own sin nature. We have our own issues. But friends, we also battle supernatural powers. And, And part of the darkness, particularly in the West, of our thinking is that the devil doesn't exist. And and even if he does, he's off, you know, in hell somewhere with a pitchfork. And demons certainly don't exist. Well, the modern mind knows that's a fallacy. And that just gives them a cloak of darkness in which to work. Because they do exist, and they're very real. And they influence families in supernatural ways. And when children are born into homes where the families have allowed demonic bondage, the children get influenced at a very young age. And I want to be sure that we know, before I leave this subject this morning and move on, I want to be sure that we understand. Demons do not jump on people out of the bushes as they walk down the street. You know? You're not going to be strolling down the street one day and a demon of pornography is going to land on your shoulder and all of a sudden you're going to be addicted to, to porn. I mean, that is, that's never going to happen. What they do is, they present you with opportunity to sin. They give you temptation. And when you submit to that temptation, and and buy into it, and you do that time and time again, they gain a stronghold in your life. 
Now, the next objection that somebody's going to say is, wait a minute, that's only true of unbelievers, right? That's only true out there in the world, that Christians can't have demonic problems. Well, that's because we have a total misconception of what a demonic problem is, and it's in part encouraged by the King James concept of possession. I often hear people say, Christians can't be possessed by demons. Well, if you're a child of God, you're possessed by the Holy Spirit. But that does not mean that you cannot give a piece of your life away to a demonic spirit that gains a stronghold because you are disobedient to God and obedient to some diabolic scheming spirit that has planned to bring you down. And as a consequence of that, they gain a stronghold. That's why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, do not give place to the devil. And the word place there is the Greek word topos. We get our word topography from it. And it means don't give them a piece of real estate in your life. And I want to also hasten to give the remedy before I move on, because if you get stuck here, you're going to be struggling in angst all week. What do you do if there is a stronghold in your life? What do you do if suddenly as I'm talking, you, you, you make the connection and you say, Oh no, I realize that I have given this area of my life over and now the enemy has control of it. And, you know, I, maybe there's a demon that's, that's got a stronghold in me. What do I do about that? And I want to tell you, friend, that Jesus is your answer. And that he is the deliverer and he is the healer. He is the one who came to set the captives free. And if that's true of you, then the the way out is the same as the way in. Go back to God. Name the area of your life that is in bondage. Name the sin. Call it what it is. That's called confession. Agree with God. And, And take that part of your life and give it to the Holy Spirit. Devote it to Him. Lord, I want to change this very day. I repent. I turn around. I want to take back the ground I gave away. I want to invite the Holy Spirit to have control of this area. I want Him to take over. And I want to ask You to drive away any evil spirit that I have permitted to influence me. Drive them away. Now, When you say that, don't think for a heartbeat that they're going to go quietly. Because uh, they will be there to tempt you to see if they can get back in. Just keep your eyes on Jesus. Keep your eyes fixed on Him. Devote your life to Him. Give the Holy Spirit the, the right to reign in your life. And if you find that difficult, then you find some trusted friends to pray with you. And to hold you up in prayer. Confess your sin one to another and pray for one another that you can be healed. And, and get that thing out and deal with it and allow the Holy Spirit to minister to you because there is hope and truth in Jesus Christ. Friends, uh, I'm, I've run out of time. <laughs> Even before, I didn't get as far as I did in the first hour. But anyway, um, Next week we're going to pick this up, and I'm going to deal specifically with choosing 
what to believe as an act of faith that leads us out of darkness and expecting a battle but expecting to win. And, and, and as I do that, as I mentioned to the uh, 8 o'clock group, I'm going to talk specifically about uh, the battle that a lot of people face with depression. I'm going to talk about that because um, it's a battle that I happen to know so well myself. I've, I'm not talking out of my ear uh, or out of a book I read. I'm talking about a battle I have fought in my life and have come to uh, see the victory that is in Jesus Christ. But friends, the very nitty-gritty of being made over into the character of Jesus is by the Holy Spirit identifying the lies that you and I have believed about what is important and valuable and true and replacing them with the truth of God. That is called the renewing of the mind. And that is a process that requires your surrender to the Holy Spirit and your invitation for Him as the light of God to be at work in your life. Because those cherished ideas do not just die quietly and easily. They don't just vanish. They do once you get it, but understanding it, because we are blinded apart from the light of Christ. And all of our background tells us that the, the lie we have believed is true. Our, our whole upbringing, our culture, the world. You may have invested 40 years of your life along a path that you suddenly realize is, oh my goodness, I've been pursuing the wrong goals the whole time. Right, that's tough. I mean, it really is. To, to, to realize that you spent four decades in pursuit of the wrong thing. God does not want you to be in despair over that, okay? And the reason I say that is because the Holy Spirit, if that's what you discover, the Holy Spirit has brought you to this moment and this time and this place, and you're in the will of God, you're, you're under the divine surgical knife, you're under His healing power, He's doing His work, praise the Lord, He's about to set you on the right path. Don't get in despair. But I want us to understand that these things that, that we come to confrontation with in truth shake the very foundations. I've given you scriptures in the margin. One of them is says there is a way that is logically right to a man. It makes sense. Everybody thinks it. And it leads to death. God says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts aren't like your thoughts. In fact, the scripture says in Proverbs, do not lean on your own logical assumptions about what is re realistic and, and true. Don't lean there. But in all of your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. And friends, our lives are filled with logic and reason and assumptions and values and ideas that are biblical fallacies. They need to be exposed. 
They need to be corrected. They need to come into the light of God. And then the Holy Spirit can set our feet on the right path. And the, the great news is that when we allow that process in the renewing of our mind, in the embracing of truth, when we allow that process, the character of Christ is formed in us. And the things that he promised become true of us. When Jesus said, I have come that you may have life and have it in all of its fullness, all of its abundance. You know, there's a lot behind the statement. He has come for that reason. He wants to give you a full and an abundant life. But you must come to him and submit to him to get it. He invites you, but you must embrace him. And in embracing him, you must come to the truth, because it's in the truth. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. I've come to proclaim liberty to captives, to set the prisoner free. That's his mission. And and it's our own false beliefs that frequently hold us in bondage. We have to come to the light of day. Lord Jesus, I pray this morning that you would give us hope and encouragement. That we would come to the understanding that in Christ all of his promises are yes and amen. All of his word, his truth is real. But often we are looking for a band-aid for our hurts when we need major surgery. And I pray, Lord, that we would not be afraid of the divine work that your Holy Spirit does in us. Because he does not heal our hurts lightly. But he does a real work that heals us completely. And I praise you for that. And I want to encourage everyone in this room. Lord, I want to ask you to build encouragement, build hope. Jesus is our answer, and he is real, and he keeps his word, and we can trust him. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.